0: hello and welcome to the mit press podcast i'm your host chris gondek and today i'll be speaking with olivia erlanger and luisa ortega govella about their new book garage olivia erlanger is an artist and writer based in los angeles she is shown internationally at mother culture human resources and now pila Corrias and matthew gallery she received the inaugural bmw open work freeze prize in 2017. erlanger was a visiting artist and lecturer at brown university Sci ARC and the Architectural Association. She co authored Born Goth with Ortega Govella for Harvard Design magazine. Luis Ortega Govella is a Mexican architect based in London and Los Angeles whose work has been shown widely, including at the Ludwig Museum Cologne, Stetagique Museum, and the British Pavilion during the 15th Venice Architecture Biennial. An Architectural Association graduate, he has lectured at the Royal Academy of Arts and TU Delft. He is a founder of the arts collective AYR. Erlanger and Ortega are at work on a documentary film on The Garage. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the show. Luis Ortega-Govella and Olivia Erlanger, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today.
1: Thank you, Chris.
0: Hi, Chris. Thank you for having us. So now, Luis, you are an architect, and Olivia, you are a visual artist. Uh, you both approach the topic of the garage for a visual medium in your work. With Olivia, you specifically visually. I know, Luis, you have written about garages as well. So given the fact that both of you, as an architect building things and as an artist building things visually, what made you want to write a text about
1: garages? Well, I guess for me, it started, I was thinking a lot about the iconography of um, an American middle class, and I was trying to think of symbols that could represent different aspirational qualities um, that could like point back to an American dream. So the garage came to me as an object, I guess, rather than even an image. I actually made a sculpture with a freestanding garage door in a gallery space in 2015 And it was at that opening that Luis and I's mutual friend showed up. And he was like, oh, my God, Olivia, have you spoken to Lou about this? And I'm like, why? No, I had no idea. But Luis that same week was presenting his thesis about Frank Lloyd Wright being the inventor of the attached garage. Um, So from there, then. Naturally, a FaceTime occurs. We're both freaking out. Who knew that one in New York and the other in London both could share this um very specific interest. And then um over that initial phone call, we were like, let's write um an essay mostly for ourselves. I feel like the whole project honestly has been predominantly just for for Luis and I, like nobody ever said to us, you guys should really write a book about garages, but we just kept finding so much to discuss. Um, and so, and our conversations became um, so much broader than just like the architecture of the space or even how the image is consumed and it really has become, um, you know, much, much bigger than we had ever anticipated.
2: Yeah, in, in true garage form, we like no one asked us to do this and we just went into it and sort of started creating it together. Uh for me, it kind of really started around 2014. Uh it was at the time where the sharing economy was kind of like being presented as this like new internet-powered capitalism that the consumer kind of could capitalize on their property and monetize it. So it was really like sort of looking at companies like Airbnb and Uber that were appearing and changing the built environment. I was interested in in how basically the cities that I was inhabiting at the time, which were London and like traveling around, I was seeing this radical change. Suddenly the internet was no longer this virtual space, but it was a virtual space that was changing directly the way that we inhabited cities and how cities were sort of being constructed and built. So I wanted to locate this architectural space that could historically bring me to a point where I could kind of tie in that diversion between the virtual space and the kind of reality real space of architecture I ended up with the 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 garage sort of because it kind of felt like this mythological birthplace of Silicon Valley so a lot of like the entrepreneurial um, lingo and and um, kind of attitudes that were present were sort of coming through um, that history so it was Sort of looking at that, and, and specifically sort of trying to think about how it was in this space that a lot of these American inventions that were changing the way that I in- interacted with the built environment, so like Amazon, uh, Disney, Apple, like all of these companies that sort of have, were permeating in my own existence, were coming from this one space. So I was like, if this is such a space for American invention there also needs to be a space or like a time when that space was created because as any architectural technology, everything has a beginning. So it was around that time that I found out that Frank Lloyd Wright was a huge car sort of aficionado, like he was a big collector going bankrupt many times over to like um, sort of buy more and more cars. So I started kind of reading up on like Frank Lloyd Wright's car uh, obsession And ultimately finding in a biography of his, like this small footnote that sort of recounted how the Robbie House, which was built in 1908 in Chicago, was the first house with an attached garage ever built. And that's when suddenly the whole thing started really unlocking. And when Olivia and I first spoke, it was kind of like bringing all of that research into what her was kind of a her sculpture, which was sort of dealing with the kind of codes of masculinity, but also sort of this uh, symbol of a waning middle class and it kind of made a lot of sense that sort of both of our brains were kind of approaching the same object or the same symbol from very distinct sort of practices but all, all ultimately very…
1: Complementary.
2: Uh, yeah, exactly.
1: Anytime again that we're talking about this project I feel like both of us get, you know, re-inspired and find like new angles on it but I do think it's important that like both Luis and I came of age during, you know, the introduction of the iPhone, um, which is part of this, you know, myth of like the Apple garage and that as millennials, we've sort of been enmeshed in a digital space. And this architecture is um, a part of this sort of like grand uh, monomyth of entrepreneurship that also we came of age during like one of the like, largest global financial crisis um, that really influenced, I think, both of our perspective on what the trappings um, or, like, the faults and shortcomings of pursuing, like, a radical individual um, perspective of entrepreneurship and capital that the garage itself encompasses. And it became... I don't know, and somehow I feel like it is also a project that allowed us to reflect a lot on what we also um, have experienced just coming of age in this time.
2: Yeah, it's funny if you think about it. The iPhone was released I think the week before the financial crash of two thousand eight. So, it it like both things sort of like are very connected. I think in in both Olivia and I's research, and it was natural that something was going to come out of it. We never expected it to be a book with MIT and a documentary that we're working on right now.
0: So now, Olivia, I know that you are based in Los Angeles. And Luis, I've read that you have spent time in Los Angeles. Within the book, beyond the textual analysis of the garage, there are a lot of visual images of garages and a lot of them are based in Southern California. And if you think about it, you know, Southern California has always been in the American myth, kind of one of the car capitals of the world. Does Southern California or the myth of Southern California play a particular key role in the whole idea of the American garage.
1: Definitely. California plays a huge role. And it's been an incredible resource for us as a point of um, research that we can actually be in a city that, as you mentioned, has like is based basically fundamentally through its infrastructure on commuter culture. Um, But it's also, you know, you get um, up north, you get Silicon Valley and Palo Alto and some of the first planned housing communities with tract homes that had attached garages. So we were actually able, initially when we first were approaching the subject, both being in New York and London, we were approaching it, well, me from the maybe an insider perspective, having grown up in an American suburb, but still with like a reluctant distance. And then since we've been in California, we both have become completely enmeshed in what is car culture basically. And something that defines the whole definition of mobility literally and access in a place like this. Um, So it's been really incredible to also venture into real life people, contemporary users of the garage, um, because, the book presents a non-linear history of the space of the garage, but then through making the documentary, we found research subjects who are contemporaries who are finding uh, really important new ways to use and abuse the space.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it's for me, it's funny uh, to sort of think about it because the first time when I was approaching the garage, when I was in London, I grew up in Mexico in a, in a, in a very cal- car culture, car-centric sort of developed, weird, exported idea of what an American suburb was, but reinterpreted in Mexico. So, I mean, what is prevalently a Southern California creation, you know, if you think about it, the first freeway was built in LA and the first sort of, like, the whole notion of car culture really starts here and it's it's culturally exported through media and through, like, sort of film and TV and, like... So it, it, it makes sense that that was kind of very... It was permeable in the border that I grew up with. So once I we wrote the thesis, sort of like when we were both not in a, in car centric places like London and um, New York, we then sort of arrive in LA and it's it's we're really sort of swallowed by that reality. And and it's interesting because it actually um, it makes a lot of sense that in a space where the car sort of was the main driving force in design and what basically was dictating how cities were basically being arranged, that sort of the garage would also be part of the folklore here and the myth and the whole like, you know, American way of life is the garage is really, really, uh, as much as anywhere else in America, it's a space where like, there's a lot of connotations with like connections to the, to your father, to mechanics, etc. cetera. It it's in, I think Southern California and in California in general, Where the garage really takes its own sort of identity as this kind of alternative space to the house. Going back to the images that you were mentioning, a lot of those images sort of is this reinterpretation of how um, the space of the garage really exists as both a physical architectural space but also as this constructed image that has been kind of constructed by the users, but also the kind of folklore that surrounds it and the kind of, yeah, the, the myths and stories that have come out of it.
0: For this house, the Robbie House, which was the first house that ever had a garage built onto it. Um, Luis, could you talk about one? Was it a particularly revolutionary thing or was it just kind of like, well, cars were starting to come out and they needed some place to shelve them? I got a sense that the Robbie House in particular, how the garage was designed compared to the rest of what you might consider the traditional entrances into the house. That was really interesting. The Robbie
2: House in 1908, which is kind of the, the epitome of the prairie style that he was developing, which was a new vernacular a completely new typology for the american family that he sort of was that were coming from his emersonian ideals but also it was coming from like the intelligentsia he was hanging out with because at the time wright was sort of working with louis sullivan but also sort of really meshed in this oak park uh community of uh kind of young entrepreneurs so frederick robbie frederick and and frank sort of met and They both were immediately really close because Frank was obsessed with cars and Frederick was at the time working with his father who was um, a bicycle manufacturer and he was developing a prototype for an automobile, a very very early early. like prototype for it. So um, it was around this time that Frank had already tried to integrate garages into houses before, but like the legislation at the time did not allow for it. So it was like considered a very dangerous practice because of like fire hazards. And I mean, the car was temperamental. It was a new, it was a new machine. It was not sort of mass produced yet. It was, it was at the same time as Ford's Model T came out. So it was really not common practice. And it was really like a weird concept to even kind of come about, you know, like how does a family sleep next to a machine? It's not, it wasn't how we see it today. Cars were dangerous and like there was no space for them in the house, in the home. So if you look at the Robbie house, it's not only the fact that the garage is attached to it and that makes it so radical because finally, you know, you have the place of entry becoming the place where the car comes in and out of the house. But it's also a lot of like the most radical sort of um, architectural moves that Frank was trying to do with the prairie houses. He was finally able to do them in the Robbie house, like removing the front porch really kind of diminishing the size of the house there was no servant quarters anymore so he was really sort of trying to change the way like there was already a change in the way americans lived, but he was really physicalizing it into like a new typology and a lot of the people when like the neighbors of the house when they were looking at it at the time of its construction they lit- literally thought it was a brothel they were like so shocked about how non-like domestic it looked and how much of a house it wasn't or performed as it was kind of interesting kind of coming out with the book like 110 years after that house was built because it's been sort of written about and talked about for a long time as this um birthplace of modernism in architecture but it has never been sort of discussed as the predecessor to like the american suburban home having said this frank grew up with a very a strong female figure in his household. His mom was always working. And he was very much like a lot of the women that he was dating at the time, even though he was cheating on his wife, were like radical feminists, first-wave feminists in Chicago. So as much as he was a problematic sort of male white architect, he also was embedded in the conversations that were sort of radically changing how domestic labor and female uh, presence in the household was being thought about and considered.
1: I guess the cognitive dissonance about, you know, right you know rubbing shoulders and being a part of potentially like a radical and at that time maybe potentially a radically feminist dialogue is that the designs that he created end up becoming sort of like totemic of um or like icons of a a nuclear family this idea of like the perfect American family that could inhabit like the post-war suburban home design and yet he had like a trail of failed relationships and um, was kind of notorious, at least in hindsight, for fabricating his own history. Um, And I think that that is also something that we really delve into and push in the book is questioning not only his authenticity, but the ability to use the space of the garage to distort one's reality. Um, and through his like erasure of dates um, to make all of his drawings seem as if they happened earlier, It you know he was presenting himself constantly as the inventor, as the first. And that, I think, to both Luis and I, um, is systemic within a patriarchy. And as feminists, when we came to write the book, it was something that we found replicated across garage users and We're trying to present an expanded queer history of the garage as a space for incubating, you know, new ways of being that can transcend the more traditional codes of masculinity that are transposed across generations in the space. Um, And that's actually what we found, which is the most exciting thing.
0: Uh, so we talked a little bit about Southern California, and in that question of the Robbie House, we talked a little bit about what was going on in Oak Park, Illinois. But uh, again, going to the very first answer, I want to talk about Northern California and the sense of the garage as the center for the entrepreneur. You talked about Frank Lloyd Wright's reality distortion field, which is also a term which was given to another American uh, giant of capitalism, Steve Jobs. Um Tell us about the, icon- the what's turned out to be, to a large degree, the iconography of the garage in Northern California, and how it leads to kind of a neoliberal hegemony.
1: Well, reality distortion field is actually the term that the Apple employees created to describe, uh, most specifically, Jobs' ability to create a kind of ecstatic belief in a in a reality that did not yet exist. Um, it's how he got people you know to design the first personal computer and and to believe in something that at that point was so um beyond the realm of possibility um that it took his you know uh weaving of fiction to get people to kind of see what their true potential could be and then In relating just back to Northern California and that original Apple garage, there's a link um, that we have yet to talk about in the interview between um, the Frank Lloyd Wright attached garage typology and um, the Apple garage. And that is a California real estate developer named Joseph Eichler. And Eichler's background is really interesting because he was actually urgently in food distribution, and then he became obsessed with Frank Lloyd Wright after staying in one of his houses and applied his experience in food distribution to house design. And so he's responsible for these um, huge swaths um, of houses, building houses for the first time by the hundreds rather than as individuals. And it's funny now because Eichlers are sort of these like cult. Um, houses that they were originally built for the quote-unquote every man, and now, you know, they're totally fetishized. But Jobs claims to have started um, Apple within one of the Eichler houses, and Wozniak is continuously contesting this, but somehow Jobs' ability to distort reality, which again is something that Frank Lloyd Wright was able to do, and something that throughout... Um, all of the garage users who are contemporaries now that we have interviewed for the documentary, they're all able to do this. And it's really um, fundamental, I think, to how we use all of the inventions that come out of the garage, like the personal computer, our cell phone. Um, and so I feel like uh, the ways in which the garage exists now is kind of transposed into the personal device. and is something that in the book Luis and I write about as the ability to garageify space. It's more of a mindset than than an actual location.
2: Yeah, I mean I think the 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 main sort of connection between this reality distortion is is for us is more is more than anything locating that the American dream, I think at the end of the 20th century really distorted itself into a delusional state of mind that the only way to basically achieve this, um, what was in the 50s and in the kind of post-war era presented as the kind of heteronormative traditional family, sort of twisted into a hyper-individual. And that hyper-individual, the only way to start sort of being able to construct this new realities was by first and foremost constructing their own persona and their own reality. And and, um, it's something that's very present in both Frank Lloyd Wright and Steve Jobs. They were both sort of early on abandoned by their parents, Steve Jobs famously being adopted, and Frank Lloyd Wright sort of abandoned by his dad. And I think that sort of psychological condition also creates a, a kind of weird, the inventor is as much an inventor of himself as he is the inventor of the object that he's creating. So uh, the, the the reality distortion is really something that we are locating that not only is particular to these two cases, but it's something that is prevalent in a lot of the garage sort of myths that have come out of it. And it's really that, um, that central psychological aspect that we are kind of really indicating in the book because it's, it's, it's something that is really, you can see everywhere, and especially now that we're making it into a documentary, a lot of the characters that we have been interviewing and spending time with, they sort of present the same condition where the sort of reinvention of the self goes even to the point of like um, dressing up and it's also something that, like, if you think about Steve Jobs and Frank Lloyd Wright, they both had a very particular sort of costume that they would go into when they were performing whatever it was that they were sort of trying to create. So it's really this integration into a subjectivity that I think sort of emerges at the end of the 20th century. And it's interesting to sort of really look at as if you look at a it's like the garage is the kind of habitat, the natural habitat of this psychology. And. To be able to like fully understand that space is a way to fully understand the contemporary American psyche and where it's headed.
1: And in terms of how that relates back to um, a kind of radical individual hellbent on, you know, raising more capital, it's that the individual is the point, is the commodity, is the brand, and that's, you know, people dress up. They create these grand narratives in the space of their garages. They distort their own reality, but it's because they themselves become the, the selling point. And it's happening even, you know, through social media in this idea of stories and like what the, a personal brand story is, um, but there's no extricating an individual from the self as a commodity now.
0: So if people want to follow both of, I guess, both your individual work and also the work on the documentary film to see when it's available, are there URLs where they can find out this information?
2: Yes, you can go on my website, which is Louise.FYI.
1: My website is OliviaErlanger.com, and we have an Instagram account, garage.garage.garage. And on the Instagram, we're doing updates on uh, different events around the book, press, and the doc.
0: Perfect. Well, Olivia Erlanger and Luis Ortega-Covella, the two co-authors of Garage, thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today.
1: Thank you. Chris. Thank you.
0: For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can also find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2019, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.